you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast, the hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the com. The Chris Voss Show. Com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you, all of you, not just you, but all of you tuning in. Thanks for being here today with us. We've got a great discussion, an incredible author. Of course, we only have the best authors on the Chris Voss Show. Uh, refer your friends, neighbors, relatives to the Chris Voss Podcast Network.com or the CVPN.com. We'll get you there as well. You can subscribe to the show and, uh, you know, sit around a table and make everyone else at your table uh, subscribe as well. You can see the live version of this video on youtube.com for slash Chris Voss. And you can hit that bell notification to get all the video notifications of what we do there. I mean, it's great technology. It's 2020. They have a video now. Uh, you can also go to our book club at patreon.com for slash Chris Voss. We just launched. And also, you can see all the books of all the authors and order them up on Amazon at Amazon forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You want to put the dot com there at the end of Amazon, but I'm sure they'll figure it out on the way there. Uh, today, we have a discussion. We've kind of had the serendipitous discussion. It's been going as a theme through, uh, well, what's going on in the current events, Black Lives Matter, uh, our discussions of racism, uh, white exceptionalism, and kind of uh, trying to figure out how everyone can just all get along with each other, which is important. And uh, maybe we can end some of the divisiveness and live in peace. Uh, so uh, this follows along that sort of uh, uh, theme. Uh, we have the author, uh, the co-author, I should say, of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Uh, this is uh, Samuel Perry who is with us. He's the Associate Professor of Sociology and Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He's a former minister and a graduate of the University of Chicago. Uh, Sam is the author of over 80 peer-reviewed articles and three books, including his most recent book that he co-authored with Andrew Whitehead. Welcome to the show, Sam. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. Awesome sauce. Uh, over 80 peer-reviewed articles. That's got to be tough to have uh, a lot of peers reviewing your articles, huh? <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been busy. Fortunately, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's like that's like being a an artist, and you're like, hey, critics, come on in and tell me, kick the tires <laughs> and stuff, right? You know, exactly. So opening yourself up, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like the good, bad, and ugly. Like I, you know, <laughs> that's you. I, I don't know if I'd take it well, uh, but uh, give us your plugs so people can look you up on the interwebs. You just follow me on Twitter at, at, uh, at Soch of the Sacred. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. That's basically my, my, my habitat. Awesome sauce. And then you can get his books on Amazon.com or your local booksellers. So uh, Samuel, why did you uh, want to write this book? You know, it, it actually goes back a few years, uh, starting around Trump's uh, and his uh, ascension uh, within the Republican Party. Uh, mm -hmm. We started to see these poll results about evangelicals uh, voting for Trump in huge numbers. And it shocked us, obviously, because we were, uh, you know, historically, e evangelicals really prided themselves on being what they called values voters. 
which they, they claim to value character. They claim to value things like family values and, and sexual modesty and all of these things. And, and Trump was obviously the furthest thing from that in the universe. And so uh, as he kind of uh, Trump slayed all of the all of his competition in the in the Republican primaries and eventually won the election. And uh, polls show that he won like 81 percent of the evangelical vote. And so they didn't sit right with this. I mean, we wanted to understand like better. OK, why did this large group of religious Americans who claim to value uh, value uh, conservative and religious uh, kind of morality? Why did they pull for Trump so hard? And so we, we started to collect survey data. Uh, and what we found that it really it, we, what we found is it, it really wasn't about being an evangelical Christian per se, but it was about this underlying ideology of wanting to win back a culture and a country that you feel like is being taken from you. So if you look at all of uh, Trump's stump speeches to religious voters, it's never about being a good neighbor. It's never about like living out Christian values. It's about, hey, those people are taking your country. They're, they're, they're slamming Christianity. Christianity's on tough, uh, had, a, had a tough time recently. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick up for you guys and I'm going to bring this back. Uh, people will say, and say ridiculous things. You would say like, you know, People are going to say Merry Christmas again. Have you noticed how nobody can say Merry Christmas? Uh, I'm going to make it so that they can say Merry Christmas again. Or um, I'm going to make it so that you guys won't be persecuted. And, and, uh, and so because there's that overwhelming feeling among conservative Christians that they're persecuted, that people are targeting them. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to collect data and to uh, understand the scope of this ideology that we call Christian nationalism that really sees America as rightly belonging to Christians. And I put that term in quotes because it's not just like all Christians, it's Christians who are like us, right? Christians who are conservative, white, native born, uh, culturally, you know, culturally Christian, at least by identity, but it's, it's basically kind of all of these things. And so Christian nationalism is this ideology that understands America as rightly Christian, belonging to us. And we need to reclaim that. And Trump was basically the, the means to that end. And he has been, and he continues to promise that for them. So that's really what got us into this. And then as we collected more data, we found that Christian nationalism as an ideology is associated with just about every negative political value and view uh, that you can, you can think of across the spectrum, all of the things that are dividing Americans uh, in, in terms of our culture and politics, uh, Christian nationalism is right at the center of it. So we had to write a book about it. So you would you say that's a good overview about what the book is about then? Absolutely. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so just to distinguish it a little bit, uh, there have been a lot of books that trace this narrative of Christian nationalism throughout history. Um, and I would recommend those to you. And I think even, there are even some books that are currently written right now. Uh, Ann Nelson's Shadow Network, uh, Sarah Posner's um, uh, Unholy, Catherine Stewart's uh, uh, The Power Worshippers. I think those are books that really get into the, the relationships behind the scenes going on within Christian nationalism. What our book provides is a, a kind of a broad statistical overview of how big is this phenomenon of Christian nationalism? How could we measure such a thing? And what are its influences on Americans' attitudes? And so there are, where there are other books that either trace it historically or they talk about kind of the behind the scenes people working the, working the, the puppets, Mm -hmm. uh, what we do is we try to get a broader scope of like, okay, how many Americans are Christian nationalists and, and, and what really goes into why somebody would, would adopt that ideology. And it's pretty interesting to me. Like I've never, 
I never really thought of the war. You know, I, I got familiar with white nationalism right. when Trump was elected because everyone sat around, like you mentioned, and went, what the, what the hell just happened? Right. Um, you know, even, even like, you know, Hillary Clinton's like, there's no way they're going to vote for this dude. Right. Uh, he's just kind of an interesting dude. Uh, and so I had to learn, like, a lot of the different keywords, like heritage, and, you know, when he emphasizes the word R, you're like, hold on, he's not talking about all Americans. He's That's talking right. about a certain subset of people. That's right. Um, and uh, our culture, our heritage, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I learned all the different things in the SP, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what's interesting is how you guys term this Christian nationalism. How different is white nationalism than Christian nationalism? Yeah, you know, I would I would actually say that the two there there's a Venn diagram, right? Like they would be tightly overlapping centers. Wow. Um, I think there are some people who who sincerely do subscribe to Christian nationalist ideology that for them it's it's not so ethnic. But I think for mm-hmm. a large percentage of of people we would call Christian nationalists, they assume whiteness is a part of that. And not just whiteness, but like being born in the United States, being a citizen, being like us mm-hmm. uh, culturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, what I would what I would say, and this is this is how I explain it. So like throughout the history of like the far right, uh, they've, they've been just uh, so effective at using what you call dog whistles. If you're familiar with that term dog whistle politics. So a dog whistle is if I want to say something ugly about a group. And I want it to be subtext. I don't want somebody to say, hey, that's racist. So what I use is I adopt another word that people will kind of know that that's what you mean. So I say urban, illegals, and terrorists, rather than saying poor blacks, Mexicans, and Muslims. Right? But everybody knows that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so for, a Christian, for Christian nationalism, that word Christian is actually like a dog whistle. You could call it a reverse dog whistle because it's positive. And what it means is whenever I say Christian, like we're going to take our make our country Christian again, or we're going to like, we're going to increase the prominence of Christianity in our country. It's a dog whistle. What it means is our culture, our way of life, um, what the things and values that matter to us. And so Christian is kind of a dog whistle. That means white native born, culturally conservative. Um, you could, you could actually see this even today. So um, uh, uh, Eric Trump tweets out uh, something that says, Something to the effect of, I, 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 could, I think I can get a word for word, but he says, my father will always protect, he will protect uh, God, faith, and religious freedom in this country. Uh, now, to a Christian, that ought to sound ridiculous because the Christian God doesn't need protection from human beings, but it, it makes perfect sense if God, to you, is a way of life. Uh, if God is a, is, it, it means our culture and our values, and that's exactly what Trump promises, is he, he will protect Christian in the sense that that means our way of life and our culture. I think he actually, Trump actually said too, that Biden will kill God or something. That's right. right. He's going to hurt God. Biden's going to hurt God. And that's exactly what he means. Every time that that word God comes out of Trump's mouth, you can assume that's exactly what he means. He has no, he has no conception of God as a person uh, or, or or somebody he knows personally. It's, it's always about, Hey, you Christians, you guys are really into this God thing, right? I'm going to defend this God thing for you. It's interesting too how they don't, they don't, they don't seem to, they don't want to understand the suckerism or the the snake oil or realize they're being played, um, and and maybe it's because they think he's on their side. Um, the Bible, the the thing where he went to Lafayette uh, Square, Lafayette Park, and held right. up the Bible. Uh, fortunately, some Christians finally started seeing through that. Right. 
Um, you know, I mean, I read the Bible as a kid. I, you know, I, I got into it some with someone the other day who's a Trumper. Um, and, you know, he was talking about, he was talking about, uh, oh, I, I think we're having disagreement. And he was, and I was like, man, I was like, man, what you're doing isn't very Christ-like. You're being, you're being really attacking and ugly. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, he goes, well, I'm being like Jesus was when he was in the temple and oh, to put up the money changers. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm not money changing. I just said Trump was bad. So <laughs> That's right. I, don't know, I don't know why you're, you, you, you right. take that as your thing. Um, it's interesting to me um, how this gets used. And like you say, uh, you know, like I'll, I'll give an example here in Utah. It's, it's largely religious. Um, and they all were like, we're not going to vote for Trump. Uh, in fact, there was a guy there who they were kind of going to vote for or said they were going to vote for. And a lot of people across the nation either wouldn't tell pollsters who they are going to vote for. They called it the shame vote. And right. uh, a lot of it was white suburban women uh, who, uh, who basically they voted in shame, but they didn't want to tell anybody who they were voting with because they knew they were, being, they were voting against their values. That's right. Um, but in the end, like even Utah was like, yeah, we're not going to vote for Trump. And then just like you saw the results and you're like, uh, yeah, that didn't work out the way you said it would. That's right. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, I fear that that's, uh, that that's something that like all these positive poll numbers that show oh, Trump yeah. trailing in these really battleground states. Um, I, think, I think political science calls that the Bradley effect. Going back to some instance where a guy named Bradley basically lost because like everybody said they were going to vote for him and nobody did because they voted for like a racist kind of uh, uh, cause instead. That was in California, wasn't it? I can't remember. I can't remember the context. I just remember yeah, I believe one. it was in California. Oh. I think if I'm I'm the old brains remember right. right. I'll pull it but, up as we do the show. But you know, it's like I, I'm seeing positive polling from Pew and from PRRI and and suggesting that Trump's losing ground with his key demographic and yet. Uh, I worry when push comes to shove and nobody can see you voting in that polling booth, um, you know, do you end up just kind of going with like, well, I, I can't vote for a Democrat, you know, like I've got to go, I've got to go for my tribe here. And, and, and that's what it's really all about. I fear is, is kind of a, a political tribalism that is, it dresses us up with religious language. Uh, it's one of the things that we, we try to key on in the book. And so, uh, something readers will notice when we when we're when we're talking about Christian nationalism in the book, we want to make sure that people understand we're not necessarily talking about people who are authentically committed to their religious faith. Matter of fact, we often find Christian nationalism and sincere religious commitment go in the exact opposite direction. So let me give you an example. Um, Christian nationalism seems to incline Americans toward uh, more racism. So for like uh, for example, the more you adhere to Christian nationalist ideology the less likely you are to acknowledge racial injustice in policing. Hmm. Uh, you're going to say, no, they treat them all, they treat blacks and whites equally. Or, or, or if African-Americans get shot more by the police, it's because they deserve it. They had it coming. Matter of fact, Bill Barr, who's this prominent Christian nationalist in the Trump administration, just said that the other day. He said he, he was interviewing with, I think, Anderson Cooper. And he said, I don't think there's two police systems. I don't think there's inequality. I think that's kind of overblown by the media. So we find Christian nationalism is actually powerfully predictive of that kind of attitude, that just denying any inequality whatsoever. But once we account for Christian nationalism in our statistical models, we find that people who are more committed to their religious faith actually are more likely to see the racism. They're more likely to say, no, that's unjust, that's unfair. And so it's 
And so something we try to repeat again and again in the book is that our, our fight is not with people who are sincerely committed to like trying to be like Jesus, love their neighbor, uh, be tolerant of others, be good democratic citizens. Uh, we want those, those should, they should be good neighbors. And we want that kind of authentic uh, faith commitment to, to mold somebody into being a, a you know, a, a loving good neighbor, right? Yeah. Uh, it's Christian nationalism, this kind of political ideology that dresses itself up in religious language, uh, when really it's all about us versus you. Uh, it's about ours versus yours. Uh, it's about order and taking it back and uh, rearranging hierarchies or like reestablishing hierarchies more, more, more accurately. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, one of the things that we want to get down to is, is that um, it really doesn't have to have anything to do with Christian morality uh, whatsoever. And in fact, it, it could just be the opposite. Um, and, and that speaks to something that's very interesting to me because I, I'm an atheist, okay. and 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 uh, I read the Bible, and I I actually sometimes if I have a quandary over morals or something, I go, "What would Jesus do?" Not that I believe the book is real or right. Jesus. I don't mean to offend anybody. This is my opinion, but I actually look at that as a reference point. Like I re- I reference, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandments are a good thing for uh, what's the the Golden Rule? I'm gonna reference the Golden yeah. Rule. Like, why am I good to people? Because I want people to give you to me, and who goes around comes around. It's kind of a karma thing, but you know, if if it comes down to it, I'll be like, "What would Jesus do?" You know, and it's not that I'm religious in any way, shape, or form. It's just a it's a good self motivational, uh, positive role model sort of thing. Um, and what's funny is I'm an atheist, <laughs> uh, so when I when I see religious people doing the opposite, I'm just like, "What the hell's going on, man?" Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was mayor Tom Bradley from Los Angeles that it happened to, and this was during the eighties, during the rise of Reagan, who also brought that the shining city on the Hill. So my question to you is, is, is this more, cause I really love the interviews and research that I did on you guys, um, and, and what you guys put into it in studies and we'll get to some of that, but is this more about power or is it more about the exceptionalism uh, that comes from the history of America? You know, why we, you know, the Puritan nature of a city on a hill or, you know, yeah. we have to, we have to enslave the heathens and, and uh, you know, the dirty Indians and, you know, all that horrific, horrible yeah. stuff that they did. Uh, is it more about power and retaining power? Right. I, I would say, and there's different opinions on this. I would, I would draw a distinction Mm-hmm. historically between what we see now is basically white Christian nationalism. That is, mm-hmm. that is really about power. Mm-hmm. And it's about, it's not just about power, but it's about boundaries, right? Like mm-hmm. who, who does America belong to and who gets mm-hmm. to call the shots and whose, whose preferences get reflected in our policies and our sacred symbols and the way that we go about kind of uh, thinking through the kinds of people that we want to be and the kind of people that we want to allow to have privileges in our country. That's mm-hmm. Christian nationalism. And that's really what it's concerned with historically though. And absolutely, I mean, I would, I would not deny that there was all kinds of like ethnocentrism and manifest destiny and things that denigrated, like uh, allowed for the enslavement of people and, the, uh, and to some degree the extermination of Native Americans. But there was this core of, of civil religion, that, 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 I, that narrative of the city on the hill. If you remember where that, that comes from, uh, that, that famous uh, sermon that was given uh, on the ship on the way, or on the ships on the way over here, uh, before these Puritans come to the New World, um, 
it really was about obligations, right? Like it was, it was about like, Hey, God is, is going to give us this great land. And so we have obligations to love one another and to be a just and equitable society. So there was this core of civil religion that was actually really at its best. It could be really tolerant and it could be really um, championing these, these values that we, we would all agree are very good, which is why you've, you've actually seen throughout history, African-American uh, leaders referring to this kind of narrative of our obligation to uh, pr- call it providence, call it heaven, call it, call it God or creator or whatever. But you had Frederick Douglass, you had Martin Luther King Jr., you had Barack Obama most recently in his inaugural addresses, really making reference to this obligation that we have as a people uh, to whatever power allowed us to have this great nation. And so at its best, you could say that this kind of city on a hill metaphor could be taken as an example of like, look, that, that would be an, um, I don't mean exceptionalism to the extent that we just denigrate every other nation or culture. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, like this idea that we are united as Americans around these cultural values of, of justice and fairness and, and, and a goodness as a society. And I, I, can, I, I think that's completely different from what we see in white Christian nationalism, which is actually something interesting that we're finding now. So even since publishing the book, we've collected new data And what we find is we find that Christian nationalism, our little measure of Christian nationalism, which is a scale that we kind of designed to measure this thing, among white and black Americans who subscribe to this ideology, it means something completely different. And so what we conclude from that is that uh, among whites, Christian nationalism is really about authority and power and taking back a culture that they feel like is rightfully theirs. Among African Americans who subscribe to Christian nationalism, we find that... um, they're more likely, actually, like the more they subscribe to Christian nationalism, the more likely they are to, to be progressive, to say that inequality is a huge problem, that we need to talk about it, to uh, resist uh, kind of this narrative of it's their fault, right, that that inequality happens. And so we think that that points to kind of a, a different interpretation of Christian nationalism, one that says we have power and we should and we always should have power. That's among white Americans. But among African-Americans, it means hey, this, this idea of a Christian nation would have been a good thing to aspire to, right? Like that, that we've never actually lived up to because of our hypocrisy as a country. Uh, and so it really is more of an accountability thing. Like, yeah, that would be great if the nation actually lived up to its professing Christian values, and yet it never has. And so maybe we could actually work to make that happen someday. It's really interesting to me. How much of this would you say was a blowback from Obama? I know there were different things that Obama had instated. Uh, one of the things he kind of leaned on a little bit was about them using politics and possibly taking away their IRS thing. Or it, it seems to me that was the that was the thing that he did. Um, uh, some of this comes from the rise of dark money and and uh, power through uh, Citizens United, and, and right. I think some some religions have been able to form packs or. Yep do different things um there's uh how much is blowback from obama Uh, i think there's a lot of that uh there uh, especially among white americans but i think the christian nationalism narrative mixes in with that Hmm. because it leaders within the within the far right were able to point to barack obama's presidency which which by all i think by all metrics he was a moderate barack obama wasn't some radical uh, you know, like people on the far left wouldn't say Barack Obama was their champion of kind of like this, like far left agenda. He, he was a, a pretty moderate technocrat, right? Like he, and, 
uh, a very likable and, and charismatic guy. But uh, to, to the far right, they were able to say Barack Obama, this radical leftist who is against religious freedom and everything that we stand for. Oh, by the way, he's also closet Muslim and, you know, he's an African-American and, and, and that maybe has something to do with the stigma as well. Um, but there's a couple of things going on there. One, Christian nationalism seems to incline Americans to believe conspiracy theories, which should be no surprise, like considering uh, Donald Trump and the birther movement, uh, Barack Obama being a closet Muslim. Uh, we've, we found con- uh, Christian nationalism, uh, Christian, people who subscribe to Christian nationalism are actually huge anti-vaxxers. Uh, so they're more likely to be suspicious of vaccines, which is actually a, a huge problem for like coronavirus. Like if we actually think people are going to voluntarily take um, this coronavirus vaccine uh, when it becomes available so that we can develop this like herd immunity from it, uh, we're probably going to run into some problems with the Christian nationalist crowd that says, well, I'm not taking any of that, you know, uh, yeah. that, that thing. It's all a hoax anyways. Um, and so I think you have blowback from combination of threat that comes from whatever Barack Obama was perceived to be, but also this, propend- this, this tendency to believe conspiracy theories from the government, like that the government is all just kind of in on it together. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump portrays himself as this like crazy authentic. I mean, whatever you, whatever, whatever you would blame Donald Trump for, and I, I blame Donald Trump for a lot, Um, but you can't deny, I mean, the guy just kind of wears it on his sleeve. He has no plan. He has no kind of like, he's not playing 3d chess. Like there's, there's no, he's eating the checkers. So I think people could look at him and say, man, this guy's not, he's not, he's, he's not even, uh, playing around with what he's trying to do. And there's an authenticity there that people I think rallied to. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, up against this kind of conspiracy believing radical leftist agenda thought, and Donald Trump, who says, I am what I am and I don't care. And by the way, I'll stick up for you guys. I think there was just kind of a, a desire to believe those kinds of promises. Mm-hmm. How much of, uh, yeah, I mean, when, you, when, you, when you're a racist and you see people, uh, you don't see people as, as the value of, of, of being a human being. And you see them as uh, whatever sort of racist tropes you want to take and use. Um, you know, you can look at Obama, I, you know, I've seen all the different stuff the deplorables put in the Facebook groups yeah. of Obama and Michelle and, and they're hideous. Um, and what's funny is, is I think Obama goes, has been to church probably more often in his life than Trump's ever driven by a church. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Same thing with Biden. I mean, like, uh, Trump's in huge trouble when it, when it comes to comparing religious statistics with Biden, yeah. who was yeah. a lifelong devout Catholic and churchgoer. Right. And, yeah. and sincerely seems to actually behave in consistent ways with his Catholic faith. I mean, and I would say Obama as well. One of the, one of the things that Christians have always been doing is, is pushing their religion into the system. And we didn't have in, in, I think God, we trust on the coins. And then we didn't have the, that part of the God part of the national anthem or the national, you know, where we pledge allegiance to the flag. Um, and that, I mean, that got added in the 50s, uh, which I didn't know up until recently. But uh, what, what's it? And then recently, what I've been learning, I didn't know there was this huge separation between black and white uh, church groups. I didn't, 
I didn't learn that until recently as we've, you know, been right. having these great discussions um, and, and how they broke apart and how the civil war and racism is part of that slavery and, Oh my gosh, all this stuff. Mm. And, you know, I always just thought eh, religious people, they're all kumbaya over there. Um, <laughs> and, Not uh, exactly, no. yeah. And they, there's like, and racism is part of that narrative because mm. it comes, if you study the civil war and all the discussions mm. we've been having, hopefully people have been listening. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and what you speak to in, in your stuff is, is about the power and, you know, I'll see, I'll see, uh, Republican, uh, and I imagine they're probably religious, I'll see them say, you know, they're, they're going to outnumber us soon, and God knows what they'll do for what we did to them. You know, you hear stuff like that, and you're like, really? You think about that? Like, that's something you're, you're spending time on? Uh, same thing with the immigrants uh, and everything else. And uh, it almost seems like it's the last grasp of dying power. Christians have always been kind of pushing their religion on us. Like, they're like, we have to put the Ten Commandments on the courthouse steps. And you're like, well, can... Uh, like, can the Satanists put their, like, uh, you know, Satanist occult stuff on the... T- no, they can't. Well, right. how come you guys are so special? Um, and so they've always been pushing that, but this almost seems like it's just the last uh, dying effort of a, of a... Because most millennials aren't going into church anymore. I, th- I think religion's going to die even more with what's going on where people aren't going to church anymore, spending more time on the Internet. Uh, do... Um, What's, what's the point I'm trying to make here? It's kind of a long one. Um, it, uh, there were some, there were some people who said that that they see Trump. The Christians kind of see Trump as like he's kind of like the Antichrist. He's like choose your destroyer sort of thing from <laughs> Ghostbusters. Right. Um, choose the form of the destroyer, and so they feel like he is like their. I think there's like an angel, uh, an archangel, or an angel of destruction. It's in the maybe in the Bible, but he, they feel like he's he's the destructor of everyone else who's fighting for them. Mm. Uh, do you see? Uh, is there any of that validated in the studies you've done? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So Tony Perkins, who's the president of uh, either American Family Institute or uh, Family Research Council, I can't, I can't remember what he is, but he's a leading, you know. Uh, former politician and also a very prominent uh, leader within American Evangelical Family Associations. And, uh, and he was asked, um, he was asked, uh, you know, why do you guys like give Trump a pass on all this stuff? Why did evangelical Christians really support Trump? And I think he said it best, like we were tired of getting pushed around by Obama and all his leftists. And, and Trump was the guy on the playground willing to punch the bully. Hmm. Um, and that's exactly who Trump is. Tr- Trump is the bully who punches the bully who's picking on you or you think is picking on you. Yeah. Right? And so um, I actually, this is one of the, this is one of the things that I'm, I'm, we're curious about. And we're trying to collect more data on. You brought up the idea of like this being kind of a last dying gasp mm-hmm. of conservative Christians. This is one thing that I think you had, uh, you guys have Robert Jones on the, on the radio show the other day. And I love Robert Jones's book. I, he had a, he had a great book called uh, uh, before this one. He's, he's got a great one called white too long, which I'm, I'm reading now is awesome. And uh, another one called The End of White Christian America. Mm-hmm. And he wrote The End of White Christian America before Trump won. Um, and then he actually had to write, he had to go back and write an afterword <laughs> for the publisher. <laughs> because in The End of White Christian America, and this is something that I would have, I would have taken issue with. He really writes about, uh, after two straight victories of Barack Obama trouncing uh, the, the Republicans, um, he was able to kind of, I mean, I think his conclusion at, at first was like, hey, this is kind of, 
they, they've already lost their influence and, and we're not going to expect too much from them anymore because they're just declining in terms of like a number of percentage of Americans. And then Trump happens and you have to go back and reinterpret what, what the hell just happened, right? Like, yeah. how, could, how could we explain this? Because it sounds like, man, they came out with a vengeance here and they're still pushing for him. Um, and, and so I, I think we have to grapple with this idea that Christian nationalism is something that is always there, but it could be reactivated when there is a, a perceived threat that's big enough, right? Like, so Christian nationalism, you could say, has been like a part of American's history throughout its history, but it kind of resurfaces whenever there is this kind of racial and cultural threat that white conservatives in power feel like they need to fight against. And so they're able to rally around this Christian identity mm-hmm. uh, and, and to say, let's come together and let's over t- or, you know, let's fight uh, and take back what we feel like is being robbed from us. Mm-hmm. And so, on the one hand, in the book, we, we do demonstrate that, like, Christian nationalism does seem to be in decline over the last, say, 15 years, mm-hmm. uh, demographically. That's just because people are getting older. And like you said, younger cohorts are, like, replacing older cohorts. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical that, that like, um, that it's just going to die out. Because I think if you, if you whip up enough kind of ethnic and religious and cultural threat I think people could be signed on who weren't signed on before because they feel like, well, well, I, I need to, we need to come together to stop these leftists from taking our country away. And so yeah. I think time will tell, and this election will be really powerful to show uh, we're collecting data on it right now before the election and after the election and, and how much of an influence this ideology plays into whether Americans are planning on voting Trump again. And after the election, we're going to ask how much it, how much it played into who ended up voting at all. Um, you know, I think you're right because the, one of the discussions I've been having in a lot of the books that I've been reading and authors that we've had on, uh, Eddie Glaude Jr. in his book, mm. Map the Arc of, you know, Johnson gives civil rights. He does a lot of things for black and poor people um, and minorities, which, you know, just helping poor people that helps a lot of minorities, at least back then, especially because there wasn't a social um a support system for people you know, that you know didn't have enough money, and of course were were uh, victims of of uh, of racial the racial uh, uh, prejudice and fabric of the society back then. And then we get the knee jerk back with Nixon, and Nixon yeah. of course goes after minorities, he goes after everybody, but he goes after minorities, uh, yeah. especially with like the drug war. Uh, and you know he was the guy who coined that term. Uh, the what was a law and order president war, war on <laughs> drugs law and order candidate war law on drugs. candidate weird that's coming back again 40 50 years later um and then we had you know we we flip back to carter and then we go right back in with reagan and yeah. you know we've been reading a lot about reagan and back then when california was a red state and then we go back to clinton and then we go right back in with bush and we're back at the same thing and then we go out with obama and then uh now we're back again and i we had Jean jean guerrero on this uh on the show talking about her book hate monger and uh stephen miller was activated in the 80s and so one of the concerns i have is that donald trump is you see these young kids you see them in the crowds you see the children in the crowds and you know their mothers and fathers are you know trump hate trump hate and you're like, holy crap, that's a whole new generation of hate. Mm-hmm. And I've been looking at going, 
you know, I, I was hoping we could get this whole racism thing revol- resolved, but it doesn't seem like we're making progress. It seems like we're just moving through waves of it through these new generations that get taught hate by whichever, you know, uh, Nixon, Reagan, you know, Bush. Right. Trump. We're just, right. We just keep reinventing the wheel. The one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. <laughs> That's right, yeah. That's, That's so sad to saying. think about. <laughs> That's my saying. You can quote me pretty, on that. That's a bummer. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I, you, I, you use the word you use the word activated, and it almost mm-hmm. seems like that sometimes. Like it, like if there's a terrorist cell or something like that, or or uh, or like ISIS recruits these kind of young disaffected people who are frustrated with life and and are able to whip them up into kind of like being mobilized for whatever cause they feel like this is something I can rally around. And Trump is able to tap into that fear and anger uh, at his rallies. And something, I mean, something that I even fear, something that I fear, and I think political scientists and sociologists are also uh, really concerned about in the future is, is how much, forget Trump, like for now, right? Like, I mean, Trump's going to go away and he's just going to, he's going to slip into irrelevance eventually. Hopefully. But the precedent that he's set uh, for a, a leader, like there used to be some kind of a standard, like the things that he is able to say and do and to lie without, impu- without, with complete impunity mm-hmm. from any consequence whatsoever. I mean, such an erosion of, of the standards that we expect from political leaders, our, our chief political leaders, um, what it's become in terms of like our fighting as a culture uh, the divisions that we see, and Trump has so exacerbated those kinds of things. I mean, I, I think my greatest concern is not whatever Trump, like, oh, again, I don't think he has a strategic bone in his body. I mean, somebody said, uh, I remember, I think a, a friend of mine, Phil Gorski, said one time that, you know, Trump Trump isn't playing 3D chess, he's playing one-dimensional chess, where where the king stands in the middle of the board and just screams, look at me, look at me, look at me, <laughs> right? Like, that's, it, that's his game. Uh. But after that, the consequences for our democracy are terrifying because it's it's like how do we even have conversations now after trump mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we keep finding in our in our studies of christian nationals as we've collected more data is there are basically three sources that that hardline christian nationalists trust in terms of like news and leadership it is fox breitbart and trump everything else medical experts other news sources that's it so you've got yourself in a situation where like you can't even have a conversation with a group of people because their their information is completely different from the information that you're getting. Yeah. Right? Like you're getting fed a completely different narrative of facts mm-hmm. than what you're going to get if you're somebody who's just an average American who's like listening to NBC or ABC or N- or NPR or any other medical expert or media source. Um, and so it, our ability to have conversations now, I, you know, I wish I wish I could say that this was kind of a dying gasp of a people who are on their way out. Uh, and yet I feel like the consequences of what we're seeing right now could be so incredibly dire for our democracy. Yeah. It's, I, I believe you're right now that I really look at it. Uh, the, um, what I want to, there were, there's two things that I have for you. I'll ask the first question and it's kind of a go back. What percentage of, of Christians would you say are, really deep into this white nationalism? Is there a way to separate them on a percentage basis? Yeah, sure. So one of the, I mean, one of the, our key contributions of our book that we, we, we try to underscore is that we, we're the first, um, I think, scholars to try to measure this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we do is we developed a scale, uh, and that's just kind of, we gave every Americans a, a series of questions. We, we distributed these surveys, 
And they're always the same questions so that we can compare survey to survey. And we basically ask them, how much do you agree with the following statement? And uh, we ask them six statements, things like the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation or uh, the federal government should advocate Christian values or uh, the federal government should enforce a strict separation of church and state. So if you disagree with that one, you, you actually don't want a separation of church and state. Or uh, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. So you, we, you believe we have a special relationship with God. And so basically people who we, we arrange those questions to where, and we add them all up to where people who score higher, the, the, the values range from like zero to 24. And so people who score higher on that Christian nationalism scale are, are more in line with Christian nationalist ideology. So what we do in the book, so that we don't have to talk about whether or not somebody scores a three or a nine or an 18 on that scale, is we divide them up into four groups. That is rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. Rejectors on the far left are the people who absolutely deny any kind of connection between Christianity and, uh, and American politics. That Those two things should be kept separate. Um, probably where you are and where most of your, your, your listeners would be, I would, I would guess. You'd be hardline rejectors, right? Or resistors at the very least. Um, ambassadors, though, accommodators are these people who are more, they're mostly Christians who are kind of friendly to Christian nationalism, but they're not hardline Christian nationalists. And then you've got ambassadors. So these are the true believers uh, uh, in Christian nationalism. And you'd be surprised. So this is, you'd think this might be just kind of a fringe minority. This is actually about 20% of Americans fall into this category of ambassador. Uh, and it actually does in survey after survey, we've distributed a bunch of surveys now, nationally representative surveys, and it's about 20% of Americans that, that are ambassadors. Um, and so when you add them up with accommodators, that's about a third of Americans, you've got over 50% of Americans that are friendly or true believers in Christian nationalism. Okay. So that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it is not a, a minority yeah. uh, group that's actually you know, they could be activated. Those accommodators can be activated to sign on to these kinds of like hardline Christian nationalist narratives. So in your guys' book, you talk about how a lot of this correlates with the guns, Second Amendment, xenophobia, all that sort of stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that that you have in the book. Right. So I think one of the things that we we keep keying in on in, uh, in, our, in our research on Christian nationalism is, is people who subscribe to Christian nationalism – really see a, a, the world as a, a pretty violent place, apparently, that, that needs to be controlled. That like almost, uh, it's kind of a fatalistic kind of thing that like we're never going to get rid of violence. And they don't even necessarily want to. They, they just want to have the right people uh, do the violence. Uh, and so you, you can see this in the way that, that people who are higher on Christian nationalism respond to questions about the police, about the military, and about guns. Um, there's, this, there's this kind of feeling, what I call, I call good guy violence, or righteous violence. Um, but it's basically like when you see somebody who is kind of higher on Christian ad, those ambassadors that I was talking about, um, they're definitely going to be pro second amendment and anti government regulation, even common sense regulations on any kind of like gun control. Um, they're also going to be pro military, strong military and supporting the military and even serving in the military makes you a moral person because it's a good thing. Uh, they're definitely going to be pro-police, right? Like, and they're going to be suspicious of any kind of claims that the police are unjust or the police use violence inappropriately. So what's going on? All of those things, I think, tie into the same thing is that um, it's not, it's, they don't have an aversion to violence like you would think a Christian might. Uh, somebody who subscribes to the ethics of Jesus may have a problem with like being violent to people. 
Christian nationalist has no problem uh, with, with, with violence. It's good guy violence. So like the most, like, you know, Mike Huckabee, um, I don't know if, I don't think he originated with this, but I mean, I think he's kind of said it over and over again. The, that, that famous statement, uh, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And that's a very Christian nationalist way of thinking about it, right? Like it's, it's not about like, hey, let's, let's remove the opportunity for people to shoot one another or like let's create better values that like people, we don't have bad guys anymore. It's there's going to be bad guys and they're going to have guns. And the only way you stop them is with a good guy who has a gun. And so Christian nationalism is about let's put, let's put violence in the hands of the police, the military, good guys with guns so that they can control uh, deviance, uh, terrorism, uh, uh, crime, uh, disorder, and all of those kinds of things. And so Christian nationalism is powerfully related to what we would call like authoritarian means of social control. They're all about that. And in fact, another kind of example of, the, of this is we find Christian nationalism is, is powerfully related to whether or not you want to restrict somebody's free speech, which is kind of an irony, right? Like, because you would think the, the people who are shouting about free speech and freedom of religion right now are the Christian nationalists. But what they mean is freedom of speech for us. They don't mean freedom of speech for, uh, you know, a, some kind of Muslim teacher or some kind of, um, uh, you know, somebody who, who writes the kinds of books that they disagree with or, or whatever. It's all about uh, controlling that speech and giving it to a certain group of people. Uh, with immigration, uh, I think we see another facet of Christian nationalism. So with guns, you see kind of the authoritarian impulse of Christian nationalism. But with immigration, you see this kind of boundary maintenance impulse within Christian nationalism. So Christian nationalism asks the question, who does America rightly belong to and who can enjoy its privileges? And the answer is always people who are like us, people who are Christian, white, native-born, culturally conservative. And so immigrants are like the opposite of that. They're, they're, they're assumed to be of a different religion, assumed to be of a different race and a different ethnicity and a different culture. And so they're, they're assumed to be disease-ridden, uh, culturally backwards. They're going to make impure our country. They're going to defile our country, <laughs> which is why like we, we published a, uh, we have a, we have a, you know, we have a, a study uh, that's under review right now. It's one of those peer-reviewed studies that we're kind of waiting to get back on. But we found that Christian national, we asked all these questions about immigration and whether you ought to restrict immigration and coronavirus. Like it was how, how closely tied does immigration and people of color tied to the infection rates that we're seeing in the United States. And Christian nationalism, of course, was one of the leading predictors that Americans think, you know how we solve this coronavirus problem? By restricting immigration, by building a border wall, by making sure that we kind of prevent unclean immigrants from coming into our country. Uh, and so we see... Christian nationalism really wants to claim America for a certain group of people. And part of that is excluding everybody else who doesn't fit into that category or subordinating them, either excluding or subordinating them underneath the hierarchy of like who really, you know, deserves the privileges. This may make sense as to why Trump only plays that base and sticks with that base. Absolutely. Because he wants the image to them that I thought he just did it because he's an insecure little brat and anybody didn't vote for him, he's upset with him. But now <laughs> I'm kind of starting to think that that he does it to play with them to show his loyalty. Exactly. And 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 that's why they like it when he destroys the norms, when he destroys well everything. Uh is like he's fighting for us. Um 
And so a lot of this, a lot of what you said about the guns and, and xenophobia and everything seems to always be coming back to power and That's right. white power under the guise of, of religious nationalism. Yep. I think so. Um, and the United States is kind of an interesting example of how this is playing out. So we actually see examples of this. We, we didn't write about this explicitly in our book, but you see examples of this popping up all over the world, a kind of a, a religious it's really an ethnic nationalism that kind of masquerades as a religious nationalism. You see it in India, you see it in Brazil, uh, you see it in Europe. Um, and the, the differences are one, I mean, obviously in, in India, we see a different religion. It's the Hindutva movement. Like it's, it, that's saying, hey, you know, real Indians are Hindus and, and the outsiders are, are, are non-Hindus. Um, but it's an ethnic nationalism that kind of portrays itself as like caring about Christian identity. The difference between the United States and those countries, though, uh, like, say, Western Europe, is the United States has this very unique history of, like, evangelical language. Like, we are, by comparison, a very religious country compared to those other countries. In those other countries, nobody's going to church, nobody's reading their Bible, but they say, when they claim Christian identity, it's, it's pretty transparent that they mean native-born white people like myself, right? Mm-hmm. In the United States, though, we can mask all of that. We can do a dance where we mask all of that ethnic uh, and racial kind of subtext mm-hmm. and we, we flower it up with Christian language, which is why oh. you can see like really prominent Southern Baptist, mainstream Southern Baptist preachers or reformed, you know, uh, preachers like uh, Robert Jeffers, most recently John MacArthur, um, really stumping on Trump's behalf and saying, you know, uh, theologians like Wayne Grudem or, or uh, I think Christian leaders like Tony Perkins, really stumping on Trump's behalf um, in a way that sounds very overtly evangelical and Christian. But once you dig a little bit deeper into kind of, okay, what, what exactly do they mean by these certain code words? What they mean is ours, power, people like us, heritage. It's all code language, right? Like in, and mm-hmm. so it's more transparent in the UK. Uh, it's less transparent here. And it's more subtextual in, in the United States. I wonder if these are going on around the world, like we see the uh, the consecration camp of the Uyghurs in in, in China. Um, I don't know if that's part of the, what you're referring to as well, but it is a persecution of of uh, of a minority. Um, right. But uh, I wonder if it's because we've stepped back in the world and people are like, well, America doesn't care anymore. America isn't gonna, you know, threaten whatever and and run around with this big stick, you know, they don't, they don't care about themselves right now. And we can see through Trump and almost Trump sets an example to the world that says, Hey, you know, um, I had the Washington post, uh, co editor on and, and his wife yesterday or day before yesterday. And, uh, they talked about how the, even like with the press are more endangered in the world, uh, because, uh, around the world in different countries and governments, because, you know, he, he treats the press so horribly. Um, it's really interesting to me. So let me ask you this with, is this the reason that they hate uh, cancel culture and PC? Cause one thing I've seen with my religious friends is the, the hatred of PC. And I'm like, I mean, it's one thing to be a closet racist, but it, it was like, they were just so resentful for so many years at having to be PC and hold that in. Right. You're just like, Oh my God. Like, you can't even be polite. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, I think the, the unfortunate thing is, if you, I think you dig a little deeper, what they really hate 
is liberal democratic norms of, of, of virtue and civic kind of mindedness mm-hmm. uh, that you treat other citizens with respect. Uh, that you and, and so and and so they want to play themselves as the victim. Like, no, we're targeted. Everybody hates us, and everybody's lying about us and coming after us. When in reality, what I mean, what I think is is going on is is if you say something hateful, uh, or you say something that is blatantly anti whatever group, uh, people call you out on it, and all of a sudden you feel offended. Like, oh, you're just being PC, and it's like, well, you're you know, you're actually. Uh, being a bad citizen, being a bad neighbor for, for, you know, I, th- I think uh, with your language, disenfranchising an entire group of people. And I, I get the concern of like, I, I, at some level, I get the concern of policing everybody's language. I'm a college professor and it seems like every week I hear a story of some college professor who uh, misspoke, said something that they didn't mean. And all of a sudden they're either fired or di- disciplined or <clears throat> reprimanded or whatever. And so like, I get that college professors worry about that kind of thing too. And yet at the, at the bottom line, I, I think that's kind of a red herring for these people. Like what they want to do is they want to be able to say hateful, mm-hmm. exclusionary kinds of things with impunity like mm-hmm. Trump does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever anybody kind of pushes back, they say, oh, PC or, or uh, yeah. uh, you know, oh, you're just being you guys. It's cancel culture. And it's like, well, you know, I, I think you're you you may be exaggerating uh, how much people are really kind of restricting your your freedom uh, and when what you really mean is freedom to be a, a public uh, jerk and to say things uh, that are really antagonistic to a lot, a lot of people. That just made me think of something. He really is a spokesman for the hate they have in their heart. I've never Absolutely. been able to speak to that in right. the way I just spoke to it. But he really, they really get a boner off him because he's their spokesman and he can say the most hateful things. And what's interesting is so many who support him, he gets away with it. Like no Fortune 500 company CEO, Never. no prior president would ever. Like, I mean, you know, you, you hear the, uh, the axiom that everyone says where they're like, if Obama did any of this, like just once, like everyone have their hair on fire. Fox News would be burning down. Can you imagine if if Obama made the kinds of claims that Trump makes on a daily basis, or yeah. or if Obama literally like spent his day trolling people on Twitter, <laughs> uh, like that? I mean, the uh, and that's the thing that's kind of killing me, Chris. Is I think what what we're witnessing, along with the Christian nationalist support of Donald Trump, which I feel like is toxic, and and we we see this kind of on the ascendancy in some ways, is just the erosion of 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 conventional norms and behavior of, of how a president should act and behave. And I don't know how we go back from that. I mean, I think yeah. we're all scratching our heads with like, how do we get back to uh, <laughs> my, my wife and I will sometimes see Obama on TV and, and, and just the contrast with what we see with Trump just makes me want to cry. Like he was yeah. such a, uh, uh, even if you didn't like Trump, Obama, you, you had to ad- admit that he was just a classy um guy who chose his words well and thinks carefully about what he says. And he tries to be genuine and humble and uh, magnanimous. And, and Trump is just a, a walking, uh, a a walking, you know, uh, troll, right. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. If I ever meet Obama, I voted for Obama, but I was critical of him. I've been critical of every president I vote for because I voted for him. I've never treated him as a demagogue, but yeah, if I ever meet him and Michelle, I'm going to be like, can you guys hold me for a while? Um, (laughs) 
But no, it's really interesting. You've opened my eyes to how cancel culture and PC, why that's such a big deal. To me, it that's also about power. It's the same reason that in there was a certain time in our country where they had, you know, they had different fountains, they had different restrooms, you know, mark colored and everything. This was about power. It wasn't it wasn't just about separation. It was about power. It was me shoving it in your face that you're you, I'm me, and I'm in power, and F you. And this comes down to the conversation and the, the issues about the, about the uh, statues we're all fighting about. It's about that power, that image of power that's there. And I, I really think it's really amazing what you talked about and what you have in the book, the power of the police and the power of the good guy. You know, like John Wayne, when we spoke with John Wayne and uh, Jesus and John Wayne, author that we had on the show, um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the power of that dude who's, who, who can do all the ugly stuff for them that they feel in their hearts, but then they're like, I'm, I'm like Jesus, you know. Um, and right. so that really explains a lot, especially the guns thing. Uh, one thing that really blew my mind recently with the Black Lives Matter reemergence was I had a couple of friends that we used to talk about. We used to make jokes about people who love guns, and the ammo sexuality of it. It's like you guys really get excited about guns on like a sexual level. Like I like sex, but when you guys talk about guns, like it's like really weirdly orgasmic. Like, and, and it's just a gun. Right. Um, like, I don't even get that much excited over sex. Uh, and so we used to joke about him being homosexuals. But I saw a lot of those white guys, white friends of mine, buy guns recently. And they weren't gun dudes. And the reason they bought guns is they're like, oh, yeah, when the mom comes to my house, I got to be able to protect myself. And I'm like, yeah, what mob is that? Because it's Black Lives Matter. So right. it's black people, clearly. Uh so you bought guns, like seriously, you did that? Yeah. And I've been seeing that lately, and now I see how the whole Second Amendment, I just thought this was a whole Second Amendment, my right, my entitlement bullshit. But now I'm seeing how that's all mixed in with the whole uh, splooge of it all. <laughs> we'll yeah, use that right. word. Yeah. Um, and holy shit, I mean, just power. It's really just to me, I just hear a theme of power through it all. Right, exactly. And I think, well, and I think what we see in Christian nationalism is a, is a response to a threat to that power. Mm. So it is, a, it is a way that a group of Americans are, are trying to unite together mm. to fight against what they feel like is a threat to their power. Mm. So Trump says, I'll give it back to you. Like, I will, I will, I will take that power, I will punch the bully. I will say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. You won't have to get your hands dirty and I will do it for you. And I will take that power back and give it to you. And, uh, and this, this group of people is eating it up because they really do feel threatened. This like white conservative Christian subculture feels like, you know what? The na- there was a time when the nation was ours back when it was our country and uh, we want it back. And so really thus the title of the book, it's, it's taking America back for God, but it really is about, God is that dog whistle word, right? Like it's mm-hmm. God is our, our culture, our way of life, our power. Um, wow. That's why we're the enemy as Democrats is because we're trying to hug everybody in Kumbaya. And they're like, 
they, I mean, it's really obvious. I've heard the GOP people, Republicans and Trumpers talk about it. They're like, we're, we're going to be a minority soon because they keep letting in the immigrants and everyone keeps breeding. And, you know, they, I think it's like 2050, we're supposed to be a minority of white people, which is fine with me. But, you know, they're like, what are they going to do when they have power? And you're like, well, you guys maybe should quit being dicks. <laughs> so they don't, maybe they'll forget. <laughs> Yeah, so so think about this. Uh, a political scientist. I love this. I love this metaphor. This uh, this kind of slogan. But uh, a political scientist named Paul Jupe uh, said that uh, Christian nationalists are kind of led by what he calls the inverted golden rule, and that is uh, expect from others what you would do to them if you if you had the opportunity. And 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 you know that's exactly what's going on, right? Wow. Like, when you ask the question, hey, what are these minor- What are these immigrants going to do when they're when we're the minority? It's like they expect from others what they would do if, if they had the chance, which is uh, oppress them, <laughs> restrict them, expel them. You just uh, blew my mind with reality them. and logic. And that's kind of what, I mean, that's exactly what uh, you see Damn. going on, you know? That's, and then the fear of that and self-preservation. Yeah. Exactly. One of the things that, uh, I, I've got a friend who's writing a lot of articles on fascism because he came from a fascist country, he grew up under fascism, and he's screaming a lot about how we're moving to fascism. And he talks about the vote of the white uh, evangelicals and the and the suburbanite women, and then of course the the dissolution of the uh, middle class and the decline of income and stuff. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with self preservation. Like yeah. when you get down to self preservation, where it's like you and like you know, not being preserved. <laughs> You're like, right. fuck it. Although for the guy who's going to, who says he's going to look after me. That's what's right. it, what's even scarier to me is Trump has enriched the presidency like nothing else. Like we have no idea what this man has made off the presidency, but it's in the billions yeah, between right. all the funding of campaign funds to his thing. And he knows it. He knows he's got the Christians going, look over there. And then he's, he's cleaning out the bank. Um, my fear is, and this came in the conversation I had with uh, the author of uh, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, is they're willing to uh, sacrifice the Constitution for Trump. They're willing. They they, they believe he'll they'll he'll bring them a God country, and I think what's going to happen is if he wins re-election anymore, he doesn't need those folks for re-election again. He doesn't need them for anything. And if you're familiar with the story of uh, Hitler's rise to power, he courted the church. That's how he how, that's how he siloed his power by using the church and courting them. And then there was a time where once he got enough power, he goes, "Ah, f you too." And I believe that if Trump wins re-election, he's going to turn on the church people who support him, just like everybody else, and yeah. he's going to go for ultimate fascist power. Yeah. And yeah, because he, he won't need them anymore. Like yeah. disregard that kind of thing. And so, I mean, the 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 things that he hinted at mm-hmm. about uh, maybe we delay like he tweeted like this kind of maybe she would delay the election mm-hmm. uh, in November. I mean, people should have been freaking out. Right. Like when when he said that, because even to suggest such a thing means like, he you know, he, he knows he's losing in the polls mm-hmm. and he, he he will not like I mean. Can you imagine that guy going willingly? Like, can you imagine Trump like humbling himself, hat in hand, and saying, "Good race, Biden. Uh, you really, you know, you really won the day." I mean, can you imagine him not? Uh, like, can you imagine him not going on TV or tweeting, "It's a stolen election. Uh, you ought to be up in arms. It's all, it's all lies and robbery." And he's he's going to try to whip up half the American population to try to yeah. 
keep him in power. I mean, that, that ought to terrify us. And he will, you know, I don't think Christians see it coming, but he will betray them. He's betrayed everybody For else. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he doesn't need them after the election. He, yeah. He's just using them right now for the election. And once he does that, he's going to seize ultimate power yeah. and he's going to, and he's going to silo it. I mean, just, just watching his whole family mm. do the banana Republic on the GOP dais. I was like, does the GOP not see what's coming there? I mean, he knows he's not going to live forever, but when you've seen him tweeting about how, you know, power 12 years uh, from now, he's just recently seen the Chinese uh, premier or whoever their leader is, I forget his title, but you've seen him take ultimate power for a lifetime appointment. Putin, of course, is doing the same thing. I'm sure he's sitting around counting his numbers going, yeah, this works for me. And being the malignant narcissist that he is, it goes against all of his narratives. He's the best person in the world. He's the best president in the world. I mean, he's even said he's better than, you know, every president we've ever had. So it goes against his uh, narrative of all that stuff. Um, there's one last question that I have for you. Um, and, and it kind of falls back to where we were in the show. Um, we, we talked about how, how uh, Christians will pick up on this conspiracy theories and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they just seem to buy it all. One of the things that was interesting to me in the reflection of the election in 2016 was there was all these websites that tried to create this fake news. And we're talking like really fabricated yes. fake news. And um, they tried it first with Democrats. It was kind of funny. They were run by Democrats who were trying to just make a buck. Um, and they, so they tried making these fake websites that would just do, you know, clickbait, which is big back then, still is, I guess. And, and Democrats wouldn't fall for it. They would always, like, double-check their stats and the references and stuff. But then they flipped it to GOP people, and they ate it up. And they would never check the data. They would never fact-check anything. They just eat it up. A lot of it, I guess what you would call confirmation bias. Yeah. And to me, my opinion and so I'm looking to be corrected if I'm wrong. My, my, my opinion has been, especially from being an atheist, is if I can get you to believe, this is my opinion, if I can get you to believe in a boogeyman in the bed, uh, one of the 3,000 gods man that's been in the world, that, or, or that there's a man up in the sky who happens to be an incredible sadist and destructive, mean, vicious, angry, he watches uh, pedophiles, uh, you know, piddle children and goes okay well that's fine with me um doesn't intervene anyway he's a real sadistic sort of guy especially in the old testament uh but he loves you as george carlin would say <laughs> um and uh so if i can get you to suspend belief in in reality right like if i if i walk around and i tell you that i i'm hearing voices and people are talking to me you'll put me in a funny farm and and have me tested for different things like the guy who wrote uh uh the beautiful mind i forget the term of oh, yeah. his yeah. yeah i forget the term of what he had but if i start telling you that i'm seeing people and they're talking to me and and stuff you'll put me in a funny farm but if i tell you that it's god you'll be like oh that's fine um that, and that's my opinion that's my take on it and so my belief has always been that the reason they buy all of this stuff is is because once i can get you to spin reality i can get you to buy anything really but i'm thinking more of what you're saying and what a lot of i've been reading and hearing is maybe it's more confirmation bias right it, it's really not maybe they don't really believe 
some of that stuff, but it works for them. It builds right. on the belief and you go, ah, take some of that shit and put it yeah. on there and whatever, yeah, exactly. whatever helps us keep power and keep this little machine running. That's right. I think we, we would, I would call that motivated reasoning. Right? Uh-huh. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a bias. like you, confirmation bias is a great way to say it, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, um, you know, this is, this is on my side, you know, these are, this is my tribe. And so I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt when, mm. when it's something I'm more likely to give information, the benefit of the doubt when it, when it plays into the narrative that makes me feel good about my, my choices or my group or my tribe or that kind of thing. And so somebody, somebody like puts out some fake news propaganda about Biden or whoever I don't like. And I may even, I may even acknowledge in my brain that like, yeah, that's probably BS. That's probably not true, but it plants that seed of like, but I bet he could, I bet he would do something like that. Right. Like I bet, you know, I bet that's kind of not so far from the truth, you know? And, and, and so it becomes kind of ammo for my, bias to see the democrats the republicans or whoever whatever group as these evil cartoonishly evil uh mm-hmm. people uh on the basis of just kind of yeah fake news and misinformation it's um, really interesting that of, opens my eyes to that here's the thing that I, I would i i i get a little bit scared by as well so this idea of misinformation like trump is a notorious liar and everybody just kind of acknowledges it like he just lies all the time and nobody you can't get in trouble for it. He just lies. And so he realized like, nobody's going to slap me on the wrist and nobody cares. Um, I, I feel like that is a tool of fascism. If you ever read a great, if you want to read a great book, Jason Stanley's book, how fascism works. Yeah. Uh, he's a philosopher at Yale. It's a fantastic book and I, it's influenced me a lot. Um, but he, he writes like kind of this uh, misinformation campaigns. The whole point of them isn't to say, uh, isn't for Trump to say I'm truthful and he's a liar. It's to, it's to get you to question everybody's truth, right? Like, and, and to say, okay, since everybody's lying, I'm just going to go with my tribe. I'm just going to go with power. And so it's, it's not about who's truthful. It's not about evidence. It's about everybody's lying now. He's lying. I'm lying, but I'm on your team. And so vote for me, right? And so don't question the, the, the narrative. And so I think that's kind of the whole point is like Trump with this kind of constant barrage and cascade of lies undercuts the entire democratic process by, by causing us to distrust the system. Mm. And he's going to do it in November. He's going to question the validity of like mail-in ballots. He's going to question mm. the validity of actual like voting machines if he loses. And so that's what it's going to be. When, when he lost the popular vote, he was, he was making up stories about millions and millions of people who were like just, you know, falsely voting and, uh, and which is, there was no evidence of course, but that's what he, he wants to do. He wants to erode kind of our trust in the democratic democratic process through just a constant barrage of of lies and misinformation. And it's easier to seize ultimate power if you do that. That's right. Um, and you're right. I feared the same thing. But yeah, you've welcomed me to a few different uh, new angles and looking at the perception. Um, you know, uh, even with Stalin, there was the, he used the church, uh, and, and the perception of, there was kind of like this thing with Russia where, where whoever was the head of Russia was, was kind of an agent of the church sort of thing. Okay. Um, and he used them until he didn't have to anymore. Uh, and yeah, you see this with fascism with, with every you know, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, all of that, they use that, the, you know, once, once you can kill lies, once you can destroy the power of intellects, the death of expertise, um, That's right. 
there you are. And what's interesting to me is how social media is tied into this, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Uh, we, you and I could probably go on for hours and I've loved this conversation. In fact, we invited that gentleman on the thing. He has a email from me, so hopefully we'll get him on the show. Yeah. Uh, anything more we want to cover about your book here as we round out the show? Um, you know, I, 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 we're, we're excited that it's, it's getting a lot of attention. And so uh, we, we really feel uh, like it's a great time for that to happen. Uh, and because we, we want to bring it to greater visibility before the election, because we feel like this is such a powerful force for, uh, I think, just evil and, and anti-democratic politics in the United States. And so uh, we'd love to get the word out more. Um, and, I, you know, and I, I appreciate you uh, calling attention to it. I think uh, one of the things that we, we, we really want to underscore in the book, though, is, is just how pervasive an ideology this is. I mean, like I said earlier, over 50% of Americans would fall into this accommodator or ambassador category. And so it's not a small percentage of people who are friendly to this ideology. And so I don't think ambassadors of Christian nationalism are really worth persuading at this point. I think they're just kind of sold and they can do whatever they want to, or Trump could do whatever they want to, and they're still going to pull for, pull for them. But I think this group we call accommodators, it's like a third of Americans who are kind of friendly to it, but they're not sold completely. I think they can be reasoned with. I think a guy like Biden, who has some actual legitimate like religious bona fides and uh, can come across like a sane and safe person. Um, I think we could try to reason with that crowd and say, you know what, um, this, you know, Trump's not the guy. <laughs> Man. Let's call it if you, if you don't like Biden, let's call it a reset in 2024 and just start over. But uh, Trump's not the guy, you know? Yeah. The moment of truth is what people decide in their hearts in that poll booth. That's right. Or, or if you're sending in their mail things. But uh, I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to me. One final question I have for you. I, I see pe- I've had a different conversation with people that they say, look, I voted GOP all my life, and I know Trump's a bad. I know he's awful. He's a horrible person, but I've never voted for Democrat. Are they really just saying to me that they are falling in those classes you're doing and they're either working on unconscious bias, whether it, it really has nothing to do with the GOP. It's just that deep in their hearts, they really have these sort of racist or unconscious bias tendencies. I think that's possible. I, I think mm-hmm. uh, I think partisan tribalism, mm-hmm. uh, once you start to, and this is why, like, as a sociologist, I don't identify with the political party, and I do that, I, I, I do that intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like once you, once you start to identify with a group, then group psychology starts to kick in and I start to defend like a sports team. Yeah. I start to defend my team, right or wrong, good or bad. I'm a, you know, I'm a Cowboys fan. And so like, whether they suck, I'm just going to cheer for the Cowboys. And so like, when we do that to politics, then we start to internalize the values of those political parties without objective thought. Right. And so I think folks who just say I'm a lifelong Republican, really stand or, or lifelong Democrat, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. really are putting themselves in danger of just being a pawn and not yeah. being an intelligent, like informed citizen. I yeah. think we all, I would encourage everybody to be an informed, conscientious citizen whose allegiance does not come cheap, right? Like yeah. don't, you don't just give away your allegiance to a religious group or a political party or a tribe without really saying, okay, what do you guys stand for? Do I believe that? And do I, is that evidence-based? And, and how do I feel about that kind of thing? And so um, I would hope that your friend would could be pushed to critically evaluate, okay, you're a lifelong Republican, but what does the Republican Party stand for right now behind Trump with him as their leader? Is that what you want to sign on to? I mean, maybe they could change, but is that who you are right now? I, you know, 
I, and I bet a lot of people look in the mirror and say, uh, that's, that's not me. Yeah, I'm starting to really think that it's it has more to do with their confirmation bias and deep, that's right. the hate that's deep in their hearts. And, yeah. and it, there's it's interesting to me, like I even had to start listening to what I was saying and what I was thinking. One of the things I did when Trump was first elected is I, as I'm like, you know, I'm going to start walking around and look at faces because that's how we kind of work on a on a on a chromosomal DNA sort of level. We look at faces, we determine if we're in danger or not. And so I started looking at faces and then listening to the conversation I was having in my head. And why are you having that conversation about that person? That's how is that logical? Uh, to me, what you mentioned before too, comes down to the mob rule. To me, I look at tribalism as mobs yeah. uh, or they can become mobs if they become unruly. And like what you said before, where they start believing conspiracy theories and whatever it is, you're just like, well, that's the, the whip up of the mob. And, and when they want to go crazy, they go crazy. I love this discussion that I've had with you, uh, Samuel. Um, uh, give us some plugs so people can look you up on the internet. What dot uh, coms to go to? Yeah, so I think the book is available on Amazon, "Taking America Back for God," uh, and uh, follow me on Twitter at Soch of the Sacred, S O C O F the Sacred. You know, so uh, just short for Sociology of the Sacred, and that's basically where I traffic. I'm not on Facebook. I, Twitter is where I, where I do most of my exchanges. So I'd love to hear from uh, anybody in the audience. That'd be great. Do you want to plug your other books too? Yeah. So uh, my previous books, uh, one of them was about, and you might find this one interesting, Chris, because everybody, everybody does, was about uh, pornography in the lives of conservative Christians. Uh, mm. And that has actually become really relevant lately with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and his fall from grace, basically acting out a porn scene apparently with his wife and some other kind of, uh, I guess the pool guy. Um, so it's called addicted to lust pornography in the lives of conservative Protestants. And the book before that was about, uh, evangelicals and how they were involved in kind of global adoption, something called uh, growing God's family. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, those, uh, those are my pride and joy proud of them. So if anybody wants to look those up available on Amazon as well. There you go. Uh, addicted to addict. To lust. Uh, sorry, I, I'm a comedian. I can't pass that joke up, um, which is really interesting. I don't know if you talked about it, but here in Utah, we were one of the largest, not we, well, I don't know, maybe, uh, we were one of the largest consumers of porn on like Pornhub. Like, it was the number one state, yet it claims to be the most religious state. So yeah. you were you know, just like, what's going on there, people? That's right. And if you, uh, if you actually look up you, Google trends allows you to uh, like look at what people are searching for by state. Mm -hmm. And uh, consistently uh, when you, when you say like, you know, the word porn in Google or Google trends, it'll mm -hmm. show Utah as this big, <laughs> as this big state where like tons of hits are like porn, free porn, you know, uh, lesbian porn, all those kinds of things that all pops up in Utah. Yeah. What's interesting, I haven't ever looked it up uh, other than I remember seeing the news article because it was kind of, it kind of hit a few years back, but someone told me that a lot of it is incest porn and brother sister stuff, which is really oh, weird. So there's that. No. If you know about Mormons, you understand what that story's about. Yeah, right. uh, so anyway, thanks for being on the show. I certainly appreciate it, Samuel. And you're welcome to come on anytime. We should have like a, all, all of the great writers and authors that we're having and hearing from, uh, you know, I just, I just appreciate the chorus of what you guys are trying to come out. I'm an atheist. I love my Christian brothers. I, I see everyone as human beings. Sure. I want us all to get along and love each other. You can have your gods. You can have your religion. You can have your churches. I, I'm fine with it. Just, just keep it off my lawn. And I'll stay off yours. Um, I'm not going to knock on your door at 
at uh, you know Saturday mornings and go, "Have you heard about nothing? Um, <laughs> would you like to know more about nothing?" Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, I leave you alone. You leave me alone. We all get along. You know, we all just try and we can argue about the semantics of politics. Uh, uh, aside from that, go check it out. Taking America Back for God: Christian Nationalism in the United States. Um, and I certainly appreciate Monty's for tuning in. Go to thecvpn.com, refer the show, give us some great referrals, five stars if you would, on iTunes. certainly appreciate that. You can see the video version of this on youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You see all the wonderful books and authors that we have on the show, and you can buy them all at once, too. You can just sit there and hit the bang buy button. Buy the book. Support uh, all these great uh, people and their brilliant minds and all the work that they've done. And also patreon.com for us. That's Chris Voss. Thanks, my for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.